0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello Barney. And joining us from her beloved Jamaica is the one and only Vivian Goldman. Hi Vivian.
1: Oh hello Rocks Back Pages posse. So glad to be with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Joy to see you. It really is. For the hopelessly ignorant out there in podcast world, Vivian is a living legend of music journalism, an icon of feminist pop culture, and a recording artist who is releasing... A new album next month. Vivian, I knew you at the NME in the 80s, but Rocks Back Pages tells me that you had already written for NME as early as 1975. Mm. So where did you get your start as a music writer?
1: One day I had just graduated from Warwick University. I was coming out of the tube at Tottenham Court Road and I picked up this free magazine and it had an ad in it to go and be a secretary at, uh, and this really dates the whole thing, at, an, at a magazine called Cassettes and Cartridges, which at that moment was a new cutting-edge technology. So it was like the totally modern spin-off of the Venerable, the Gramophone Magazine, oh. which uh, you know I think started in the 18th century or something. <laughs> anyway, and, and, and thus began my career over the Sunset Strip Club in Soho. That's where our offices were. You know, occasionally I could take a quick look through the through the shabby velvet curtains, and glimpse another world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so that's where it all began. Yeah. Had you
0: already, because I know that you you worked for Transatlantic Records and obviously then <laughs> Ireland. Now, I can't get the, the chronology exactly right. Did you start as a writer or did you start at Transatlantic?
1: I'm not really sure myself. <laughs> um, I was always being published, though, one way or the other. And now that there's this sort of possibility that I might do an anthology of my writings, it's just a possibility, it's made me try and think about my writing. And actually, I wrote for loads of other people, articles that I'd now quite like to try and find. People like The Leveller, who remembers The Leveller in the days of a sort of real crusty, lefty, indie, yes. mag- editorial meetings in a dank cellar in King's Cross yes
2: where else
1: yes (laughs) so yeah it it all becomes a bit of a blur but I was writing and um, then I was doing this PR I did it for quite a while I suppose my I, I, I PR'd a lot of amazing people you know I noticed that Sparks have had a little bit of a revival recently. You know, I did them. And, you know, obviously, I guess my biggest achievement was helping get Bob Marley on the front pages as a publicist. So once I'd scored that, at the same time, I was offered a full-time job by Sounds, you know, and off I went.
0: Were you offered that job by Alan Lewis, by any chance? Or who would it have been?
1: No, let's be honest. I was, and it's all coming back to me now. Um, <laughs> no, because of our recent discussion that you're about to share, sadly. Yes, Alan Lewis was quite pivotal. He got me to write a double page center spread for Black Music magazine. Yes. On the group Asword. And uh, because of that, I was offered the job, you know, working with Bob Marley and the reggae artists in particular for Chris Blackwell at Island Records, largely because of that centre spread, I think.
0: So I mentioned this just because I only just heard before we started recording that um, Alan Lewis is no longer with us. So I thought it was worth asking you whether you had worked with him at Sounds, and I assumed you had.
1: Yes, after, you know, the uh, commissioning this article from me at Black Music that helped me get this gig at Island Records, after seven months there, he offered me a full-time writing job at Sounds. So, you know, it's a little shocking to hear this. Yeah, he was pivotal in my career.
0: I imagine so. I mean, you must be one of the only writers I can think of who wrote for all three of the main inky weeklies, you know, for Sounds, for anime and for Melody Maker. At different times, is that just because you were, you know, very charming and everyone wanted wanted you around and loved your writing?
1: Well, one, well, you know, far be it from me to say, you know, <laughs> I definitely had the freelance spirit, didn't I? Yes, you know. So you're jumping around. But, you know, I had a particular beat that honestly has been validated by time, you know. But at the time, honestly, it's not like many other people were fighting to get on the staff or really fighting to... Go onto the inside interior of the mothership with George Clinton, like I was, yeah. or, you know, I was keen to do this stuff you know, and uh, work with Marley and so on, and Earth wind and fire, let alone the punk girls uh, you know, and well, I think Barney knows about the regular about the regular Barneys that I used to have uh, especially in those editorial meetings on sounds, you know. I do think they were traumatic because I remember them in far more vivid detail than some much more pleasant things of my past. But they oh, were really? so, so contemptuous of, of female contribution, and, in fact, existence in the scene. It's like as if they wanted a cultural erasure. Of girls. I'm not joking. And the more really? I look back on it, the more appalled I am. But yeah. back then, I was like scrappy and in the fray, you know, as we see, as we'll come to in the George Benson article. But when I look back on it, it's a good thing I had that scrappy survivalist nature because I think it's probably no joke that there are not hordes of female music journalists of that vintage to chat with you on Rock's Back Pages, right?
0: No, I mean, I think, Mark, we like to think we've sort of got a good number of them now. But, um, I mean, I wanted to just ask you really about about the sort of general kind of, you know, long-haired laddishness of those times and how difficult it was, not only for female musicians to cut through, but obviously female writers to cut through. I mean, you were a female writer and you were also one of the few writers who, who wanted to cover black music, black American music and black Jamaican music and other genre so you kind of almost had like sort of two strikes against you it was it was so you're pushing two boulders up up the hill
1: wow Barney you're so deep I honestly never really thought of it like that but I suppose you know you're really right to me it was just like the path onwards you know obstacles come you just got to overcome them you know But I suppose you're right. But yes, it was a different thing being a girl from being one of the guys. But then sometimes that worked in one's favor. You know, and the sexism, huge argy bargies, really came more from just the rockest lads on the paper than yes. from the artists themselves. Let's yes. stress that the artists were cool. It was just the old school mentality of the, you know, the cockocracy. The cockocracy. <laughs> the cockocracy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of rock.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, but in this George Benson piece that we alluded to earlier, these sort of worlds collide because you're writing about a black American artist that, whose music you I mean, quite like and not worship. And I think, but you sort of say you don't mind that he sells millions of records. And then, you know, you suddenly get into very this. Very nice
1: of me, right? Yeah, very
0: nice yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's an extraordinary article because you kind of say, you start off saying, you know, we got into a massive argument about you know men and women you know being or not being equal um, but i better just because this is sounds i better let sort of give you the basic sounds interview about his music and his record sales and his guitar playing and stuff and then we'll come back to the even more real interview yeah <laughs> which is which is an amazing thing i mean actually to read now you know it was 1977 i mean a great sort of feminist stand that you kind of take in that piece. I mean, and it ends up with him yelling at you and threatening you with lawsuits. And then I think you said cancelling all his subsequent interviews. Just because you wouldn't sit there and listen to him say that men and women were not equal, and those are the facts, he says. I mean, shocking, really, now, anyway.
1: A lot of these problems, I'm sorry, you know, but will arise with people who are kind of follow... Sort of orthodox mosaic faiths of all kinds. Often there is this tendency, you know, was really massively respect women on the one hand, but on the other hand, massively respect them if they fulfil their role while in the while ticking the assigned box. You know, so, yeah, but it it, it was amazing to me to read that piece because actually I did think I structured it and handled it quite well because a thing like that would really appall me and make me feel almost quite ill, you know. But then, you know, uh, you purge it somewhat by having the last word. I I thought that my last line was almost sort of too salaciously joyful that Ah! you've been cancelled all these interviews. (laughs) It actually reads like a sort of boxing match, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it's like <laughs> the sort of end of a documentary George canceled the rest of
3: his <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Jim, did, did, um, you went to Jamaica, well, in Jamaica right now, but you went there regularly to interview various reggae stars in, in the seventies and early eighties. Rastafarianism has fairly basic ideas about the women's role in in the home and in life generally. Did you run into some of the problems with the likes of Peter Tosh, for example, or other people you interviewed?
1: have you been sneaking up on my back interviews again <laughs> 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 I, I didn't i didn't want it to become too much of a trope you know it, mm, because right. i just felt honestly like in a way to be honest you know coming up in london just to make a little comparable leap here you know as a jewish person child of refugee immigrants you know sometimes you sure. hear people anti-semitic things especially i was blonde if i wasn't redhead you know and they'd say these things and in a way you feel like you'd have to pick your battles are you every single time going to kind of read them the right act or have a confrontation or some form of ding dong you know, I used to feel often it was my bound and duty every time, except that, let's face it, sometimes you just couldn't be effed, you know?
4: <laughs> yeah. So
1: go there, just let the moment pass. You know, you have to pick your battles. So, you know, it's sort of a little bit comparable to that to me.
0: Sure. We're featuring four pieces, in fact, on the homepage, three by you and also... Evelyn McDonald's really nice piece about you from um, I think when was it 2017 or 2016 I can't remember if it's before the ShePunks book comes out anyway just, it's a really nice before, profile thank you and she kind My of goes Evelyn. through your story and the Raincoats piece was really good to read again. It really made me think about what it must have been like to be like in a group like The Raincoats in 1979. You know, very hard for, I guess, for a guy (laughs) to imagine that. But it's a very, it's very nicely done. At some point you say you say something I thought really jumped out at me where you you say, it made me realise it's taken me 27 years of listening to music to hear a woman's rock album. And that first Raincoats album is, is really that, that, that thing, isn't it? It is a woman's rock album. It doesn't sound like anything guys could imagine, whether you love it or not. That scene that produced obviously the slits first and the raincoat second. How do you remember that, and, and, and how did you feel as a woman when these these things were happening? These exciting things were happening in London, particularly.
1: I just can't tell you what a relief it was when Punk came in because I started on Sounds, it was the full time. And it was so great that I got to interview a few amazing women, including, you know, Gladys Knight, Stevie Nicks, Annette Peacock. But you see how few, you know, and it was always basically, you know, oneself and a bunch of blokes. Not that there's anything wrong with that, you know, but it's just nice to have a bit of a mix sometimes. You know, I'm not a separatist at all. So when the punk began it was this sort of tidal wave of girlfriends on the scene for me. It was life-changing. And the beautiful thing is we, we were actually really still friends, that, that crowd, And because I just always used to sing anyway going around because we always did used to sing in our family and my father was a musician. We used to sing, you know, then people would ask me to sing in the studio. and But it was very much having, you know, the people around like up of the Slits, you know. Gina Birch from the Raincoats, Nena Cherry, you know, my sisters. So, yeah, if they were doing it, I could do it as well. I could take it out of the private family domain, which was where singing had been for me before, and take it at least into the studio because uh, until recently I never performed. So that was the huge difference. Suddenly there was girls with some agency and some autonomy, you know, while still functioning within the capitalist music system, patriarchal as it still was, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yes, yeah, some agency and some autonomy. It was the rise of cassettes, the rise of indies, and it was the first time that women in pop had ever been so free. And I, I, I'm is lucky in a way that, you know, I was positioned at that cusp, at that moment, so that I could forever bear witness to the really life-changing and sort of culture-changing ripple effect of punk or the impact of punk. Yeah, I was very lucky in that regard.
0: And you were right in the middle of that scene. I mean, you had this flat on Labrick Grove, and uh, I think in Evelyn's piece she sort of talks about you sitting there trying to write a piece so you'd have headphones on, and, you know, the clash would be coming in and out, and you know the slits would become if it just everyone was coming in. and I, I don't know how you wrote in that those circumstances, but I I remember going to that flat not not back then, but later. So I remember where it was. So you were kind of key part of this of this scene, which was a sort of intersection of what became a kind of intersection of like punk and dub and. We'll talk a bit about Joe's drama late, later. Did it feel like it was a sort of crucible for something new, for kind of feminism and, and racial diversity? Did it really feel like that at the time?
1: it did feel comparatively free and we were sort of because i wound up you know how it used to work in those days there was this big house over a shop in ladbrook grove gradually the others moved out i was the last tenant standing so i took over the whole place you know yes. and i guess because of me like i was maybe and sort of. also my parents were always very welcoming in the refugee way we'd always have people crashing on the couch so you know people who are now world-famous actors, hello, Julian Firth, uh, uh, not Julian, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Julian Firth, uh, not Colin Firth, Julian, uh, used to, Julian Firth used to sleep on the landing between two cupboards for quite a while. It was, that, it was kind of a big crash pad and, like, round-the-clock party, and, of course, our esteemed colleague, Chris Salovich, was my roommate there for some eight years. So
0: uh, As long as that. Yeah okay yes, really.
1: okay more, and, did you room- yeah.
0: and you roomed you roomed also with i think jeff travis at different times and yes. and chrissy hind Correct. Uh, yeah Correct. again it might be difficult to get these things in the right order i don't know does it matter <laughs> no it doesn't <laughs> matter really.
1: no, no not really it, it was, was all going on house, wasn't it? but also very very creative yeah It was really a fabulous period, which I just sort of pulled the plug on by moving to America and sort of transmogrifying into the punk professor. Well, of course.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah, we'll talk about America. I just wanted to say, just obviously allude to Laundrette and the tracks that you released and that came out, some which came out later on the Resolutionary songs, record, and I mean, Laundrette is is like an archetypal sort of expression of that, of that moment, that time, isn't it? Co-produced by, by John Lydon, who you went to Jamaica with, so it's, just, it's really a kind of real melting pot that was very exciting to read about at the time. Tell me about Laundrette.
1: Well, I think I had just done The Flying Lizards, been part of The Flying Lizards, and I had this feeling like I wanted to carry on. And, you know, when when you're talking about these neighborhoods that had a lot of cultural punky reggae activity where I lived. So I was very close friends with George Oban, the bass player of Aswad, and he lived actually on the same block with Brinsley, the lead singer of Aswad, and Joe Strummer, not the same block, but the same road, Lancaster Road. Anyway, I had just written this thing. No, I know what happened. I went to visit George And he played, you know, he was an absolutely brilliant bass player and still is, of course. So he played me this bass line that I found so seductive and I just improvised the whole song, I think, right there on that moment to to that bass line, you know. And then I had it, of course, on a cassette, as one did, and then I took it over to John's really because I guess we were friends and we all a lot of us used to hang out there because he had the big house and the big booming sound system. Put it this way, I remember playing it to him, Laundrette and he chuckled and basically that is the charm of Laundrette it just makes you chuckle yes. you know, it, 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 it's sort of shambolic <laughs> and it's just like all those like stupid affairs that you know I don't know whether people indulge in them as much today especially in the era of Covid. Uh, you know a lot of of that stuff migrates online to the phone I gather but at that time there were you know I, I made up the story you know but that was not an untypical sort of scenario for I think most people on the punk scene yeah yeah I wanted 10 pence for the
3: dryer yes that was how we met my long bag was
1: broken my clothes were soaking wet I felt I needed hugging So that's sort of the story of Laundrette. So yeah, we did it together. Um, actually, my technically my co-producers are John Lyden and Keith Levine. Let's that's
0: right, you. of course, of course, yeah.
1: yeah. So that's it, and then we did it at, partly at the Manor, and then we did it also in this uh, basement studio in Soho. But you know, it's people love Laundrette. I I suppose it's my most popular track. They did yeah. just use it on HBO's The Deuce. Oh yeah, on the soundtrack. So that oh, nice. and and Mad Lib sampled it as filthy.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. I was thinking about tracks like that. In fact, just watching. Um, tell you this week because this. There's this new like, Apple privacy ad uh, that uses the Delta Fires. Mind your own business.
1: And, and that life. couldn't get arrested before, No, no, right? exactly. Like, <laughs> is that a Delta
0: 5? <laughs> I wonder how much money they got out of Apple.
1: Oh, I yeah, I mean, you need to give her a ring, because I, I I do <laughs> yeah, interview a very... Yeah. No, seriously, I was curious.
0: <laughs> yeah, completely.
1: Right. And funnily enough, she's a sort of super accountant now. Bethan, the bass player of Is Ah, uh, uh,
0: oh, that might Delta
1: five. Okay. So you know she's sort of <laughs> high, high level. Probably know yeah, if absolutely. anyone does. It's perfectly yeah.
4: equipped.
0: Vivian, T- tell us about the, the new record. Then next is now. I believe it's called. I know that you were, in fact, we you were in London sort of this time last year, and I think you were no, about the year
1: before to... last because of the COVID.
0: The year before last, yes, and yeah. and you were you were about to go and do some recording with Youth of mm-hmm. Killing Joke, et cetera, fame. So he's like, is he the main producer on the record or just one of the people? <laughs> don't honestly, know. That?
1: No, 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 I know so <laughs> well. When I think about that record, it could only be Youth. You know, he's such a character. And honestly, it's just me and Youth all the way, you know, in every aspect. And I don't know whether all the listeners know about Youth. He's uh, with the group of Killing Joke for Eons. And, uh, you know, he also had that band with Paul McCartney, the farmer, and very attached to the orb. Also, he produced polystyrene's Styrene's final album. And he, he works with a lot of the girls. It's just how it is. He's just that character. <laughs> and uh, it was his idea, really, because Resolution, we did well. I started to get offered gigs. But the funny thing is, I'd never done gigs before, because like when I was in the Flying Lizards, we were just too cool. We were too cool to go (laughs) dance around in front of other people, you know. so we were just a studio band man but through the teaching I'd got much more into the public speaking domain and when I was teaching at the more populist university of Rutgers right at NYU I had like a class of about 30 it's capped at 30 but I would go to Rutgers in Jersey alma mater of Paul Robeson there'd be this massive you know I'd have massive classes you know bigger than a small club and I would have to like engage all of them in the back or you you know Yeah, yeah. That helped the transition. So I said to youth who I ran into on a job, let's name drop here for our friends Zach and Shush Starkey and their label Trojan Jamaica. Yeah, and I said to him, it's so funny. I've been asked to do these gigs. I meant to do an hour on a Saturday night in a really trendy festival in Berlin. But I haven't got enough material. The whole of Resolutionary only like 40 minutes or whatever. He said, I'll do a couple of songs with you. they am like, great, let's do it. And then that went really nicely. And he said, let's do an album. And so here we are.
4: Cool. i I've, I've actually i've actually seen a couple of your public speaking events there's one which was about the Jewish involvement in punk where I seem to remember Daniel mm-hmm. Miller getting very shirty because you referred to him as being an e d m producer. He got cross about that and I saw a wonderful thing which was <laughs> i saw, I saw a wonderful thing which was a punky reggae party at the Bethnal green working men's Club. And you had Andy Oliver and Lena Cherry DJing. Uh, that's where I, I re met the lovely Michelle Kirsch that night. It was the first time for 30 years, which was a huge pleasure. And it was just such a nice evening. It was great. You had sort of projections on the screen behind you, and you were sort of dancing while talking. And it was just, it was wonderful. It was really great. <laughs>
1: oh I'm so glad yeah I'm so glad and you have
0: become a sort of a punk you you used the phrase uh, a a punk professor I don't know whether that title was bestowed upon you or Mm. whether it's sort of auto-generated but I know that's Mm. how you often referred to maybe it's your twitter your twitter handle yeah and you've taught for some years haven't you in your adopted America where you where you're based I think
1: Yes, my primary residence, as they say. Yes, uh, <laughs> my soul. I was just lucky. There's a very brilliant fellow that you should get on The Rock's back page, a scene called uh, Dr. Jason King, and he was bidden by um, Clive Davis when he was just a postgrad to put together a, a new department for nyu to be called the clive davis institute of recorded music so he was mm. just scouting apparently he came he said you know vivian i kept on cr- coming across your work in all these different areas and i was just who is she so i was on a panel uh, about fella who i'm currently working on a book about his art thereof and yeah he came with his students in tow it was just like one of those magic moments where you're discovered in Hollywood because afterwards he came up to me and he slipped me his card and he's like have you ever thought about teaching and I'm like never but I can
0: (laughs) 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 you became a teacher and that very second didn't you and
1: that is why i'm the punk professor no to be honest because you, <laughs> you remember how paul Simonon of the clash i know we'll be talking about them soon famously you know when he started he had the uh, you know the the notes stuck with sellotape to the neck of his bass, and thus it was with me and being a professor in a way <laughs> but i actually came to it from doing a lot of documentary work yes. so i structured it all you know, like a documentary, and uh, the whole scenario, I mean, honestly, we could do a whole show just on how not only the rock press has changed, which actually I meant to touch on and we haven't, but also how teaching has changed. It's massively different. You know, and I teach courses on uh, Bob Marley, Fella Kuti, David Bowie. I taught a course on Dub Nation, which was linking Dub and Electronica. And, of course, Punk, which I'm about to teach again. You know, so when we started in 2005 there was not this proliferation of media and you really used to teach the students the story this is the story of so-and-so but now everybody knows everything there's a million documentaries and you just assign those documentaries before class or you know certain readings and then you go much more tangentially and conceptually so actually although it was all fabulous for the time yes please listeners come and feel free to sign on to my classes if you're at nyu because it's it's really developed in an interesting way to be honest
0: yes You mentioned Paul Simon, and um, that's actually a sort of perfect cue to talk about this week's audio, which we sort of selected with you in mind, hoping to prize some great uh, Strummer and Clash stories. So I'm going to hand over to Mark to tell us about it.
4: Basically, it's, this is February 1988, and he's mostly been involved in soundtracks or actually participating in movies. Um, he'd just done a soundtrack to permanent record he talks about Straight to Hell and Walker. In fact, there's about a 20-minute bit where he actually talks about Walker the Man and the history of Nicaragua, which is interesting enough. If that's what you want to talk, listen to. There's a marvellous rant of hatred against P.J. O'Rourke and Rolling Stone. Also, the story of The Clash Volume 1 is just coming out. He was asked to do the sleeve notes. He said it's a very, very peculiar experience of writing the sleeve notes to your own career. He's delightful about Topper Hedon, who He says well, the th- great thing about Topper as a drummer with The Clash was that he's an R&B drummer, fundamentally. He's he's not a bash-bash-bish-bash punk drummer at all, which is one reason why The Clash had a better groove than virtually any of the other punk bands, just for that reason alone. He talks about his hatred of playing stadiums towards the end and how touring with The Who was one of the things which basically led the band to break up. It's very nice. He talks about why and how he formed the 101ers. We'll have a listen to that.
3: I stood outside the pub on Elgin Avenue. I watched this Irish trio through the window. And I wasn't allowed in the pub because we were the squatters and hippies from all around Elgin Avenue and, and Walterson Road. And like, we were in that pub and the Irish pub was like, fuck up out here! So I watched through the window. I saw the Irish trio playing and I thought, well, that's what I've got to do. You know, surely, if these gits can do it. Because it just got too hairy. With that, that system down in... It's fucked it, you know? And yeah. so I thought, fuck all that, let's get a group together. But I never thought, I thoroughly thought of like, we'll get money to live on through the summer. Maybe if we can hang together a few numbers and hell, these Irish men will let us play a bit maybe, you know? And that was how it started, rock and roll. And within 12 months, we were the hottest rock and roll band in West London. <laughs> I,
4: I, I possibly wouldn't go quite so far as to say that, Joe, but I actually saw, I saw the 101 at the Stonehenge Free Festival in 1975. They were memorable. He used to busk down the tubeways around Hammersmith Broadway when I was at Hammersmith F.E. College, so he was a sort of familiar figure around that sort of time. And we'll, we'll play another clip now because it's very interesting that Adam Sweeting kind of asked him, would he ever think about reforming the clash? Because he's become a very good friend of Mick Jones again after as that sort of breach when the band broke up. They've become good friends again. And he says, absolutely not. And this, this is great. He really talks about what the clash were about and why that they should be left where they were. Let's have a listen to this.
3: It only had meaning within its own time when people felt we were articulating what people were thinking. And that's why we were great. Not because we could play or we wrote lyrics or anything, but we just articulated the common feeling. And that means it's retained within that time lock. And okay, to me, this double album compilation coming out is interesting, but I only inspect it like a museum. You know, I'm looking through double plate glass windows at it. You understand? It's like going to the Victorian Albert Museum. It's great, but there's a full stop to it. There's a period to it, you know?
2: That's yeah, really interesting. And That's great. Astute and spot on, actually, yeah.
4: I completely agree.
0: Vivian, what are your earliest memories of, of Joe drummer?
1: So I was sort of lurching down memory lane, listening to Joe's voice after quite some period. And, you know, uh, well, you know, regardless of the first time I met him, which I'll have to think about, but just listening to his voice just now, you know, he really, you know, he really did care. You know, you hear the passion in his voice. Yeah. And, you know, I found that quite moving, actually. How did I first meet him? Well, once again, we return to those few golden square miles of uh, Ladbroke Grove under the Westway and all that, that my place, 145A Ladbroke Grove, um, was literally opposite the Elgin, where which was a sort of 101. Yeah. As...
2: Just down the road from where
1: there I am. Yeah. Really? Well, you can wave yeah. at 145A Ladbroke Grove when you go past. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I will. Yes, I will.
1: Happy memories, et cetera. So I don't know, he was just sort of kind of always there. And I believe... I'm not sure how I first met him, to be honest. I'm stuck there.
0: Did you see the 101s?
1: I think I sort of caught a glimpse of them. That's the real, like maybe walking past. The reality is, and this has coloured my whole experience in the music industry, you know, I'm really, like I'm not much of a drinker. I never go to pubs, (laughs) you know, seriously. So I was always a bit of an outlier because of this, you know. And then I always remember going to like, say I'd go to a pub to see the Sex Pistols. And there'd come this time where all the mugs would start flying and people would start biting others' ears off and... I'm afraid to say that sometimes I used to beat a hasty retreat at that point <laughs> instead of staying. Sorry, to...
2: punk, isn't it? Yeah, I, know, <laughs> yeah. I
1: know. I know. Yeah. I distinctly remember that. I had just come back from Jamaica and I was going to one of those celebrated punk gigs at the hundred club. And I remember going in, I had this red tracksuit on and all these coconut raster badges. And the, I can't remember exactly who was on, but at that moment I, I couldn't really deal with it. And I did walk out of that show. Maybe it was Susie and the band, just before Shane of the Pogues had his ear cut off i mean bitten off Bent yes off. yes bitten off that when he was still in the, in the nips.
0: nips is that when he was still yeah, in the nips yeah that must
1: have been when he was still in the nips yeah the nipple, erectus. Erectus, <laughs> the nipple erectus, yeah <laughs> i'm just
0: going to so, take a nip out of the nips lead singer's
4: ear yeah. luckily it was it was photographed some really rather splendid photographs and he seems to be extremely unbothered by blood streaming down the side of his face but yeah it's one of his... anyway i mean back back to this interview um he's to bring it up. Up to this point in 1988, he's a determinedly individual person. He doesn't have a manager. He's got no structure around him. He hasn't got a record deal as such, but he, he really likes it that way. He doesn't want to be part of the machine anymore. He's been touring the Pogues. And he's had this ghastly experience of when he would go up and sing, he'd do London Calling and a couple of other Clash tunes during the Pogue set, and they'd start spitting at him. The audience start spitting at him because yeah. that's what punk audiences did. And he was absolutely revolted by this, quite rightly. He actually caught hepatitis from being spat at,
0: oh,
4: yes, I, I believe, you know, back in the day. We'll play a clip at the end when he talks about music today, music in 1988, and Reagan and Thatcher. He talks about not taking drugs anymore, 1988. I'm pretty sure he went back to the He, he, he said he always loved the weeds, never liked anything else, hates the fact that the drug business is basically a criminal enterprise, and that you're, you are putting money into the pockets of some really pretty nasty people, which certainly in terms of drugs like cocaine is the absolute truth. I believe what he took up the weed again later because I've known people who s- smoked a lot of weed with him. <laughs> you know, he talks very, very, very fondly about The Clash in, in in many ways. He talks about the, how they loved getting interesting supporting artists like Joe Ely, who toured a couple of times with them both here and in America, how Grandmaster Flash would be booed off at Bond's Casino by the fans, having Futura 2000, the graffiti artist, doing backdrops and stuff like that. It's a great interview because he's got so much personality and it's long. It's, It's an hour and a half, this interview. And frankly... I think that's purely because Adam Sweeting ended up having just to turn the tape machine off. They could have been at it all day. We've got another. We've got Gavin Martin's very long interview with him on the site as well, haven't we? Which I think took place round a fire at a festival, um, which <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a cloud of weed smoke. It's a, 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 you know, you wind you up and he'll talk. He'll he'll.
0: He's a talk. he's a rantor extraordinaire, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. I mean, and boy does he rant in this interview. But it's always sort of. I mean, it was just this side of being like really belligerent and annoying. And, and as you say, Vivian, there's just a real passion there. I was just struck listening to how yeah. how how Joe just dropped out of the kind of '80s thing, and he talks a lot about all the big '80s acts, and they just all want to be mega, mega, yeah. and he just doesn't. He's just not interested. He just wants to knock off a record in yeah. three days. And he just wants to have fun. You know, he's got this new band, the Latino Rockabilly War. You know, it's the kind of opposite of everything else that was going on in the second half of the 80s. You know, Bob Clear Mountain remixes and things. And Joe's just kind of basically (laughs) said, I don't
4: want to be part of this. He also loves sampling. He talks some length about how much he thinks the process of sampling, what's like been done in hip-hop and on, is great. And he really hopes that one day... In fact, he thinks actually The Clash have already been sampled a couple of times. He, he, he would just love to do something which was sampled, because for him that would be the greatest form of flattery. Yeah. No, he, he's, yeah. he's great. He's great.
0: Vivian, did you keep up with Joe through, you know, to, to the end of his life or what?
1: Well, uh, funnily enough, I've got to mention I, I do teach the Clash course at NYU as well, so <laughs> I do have occasion to think about them in a different way than when they were just my neighbours. Yeah, and uh, you know what what we were talking about earlier? Uh, I think is part of the enduring appeal of the Clash, is that you know they really there wasn't you know authentic quality to them. Joe, you know he was not a fake. Mm you know and uh, the some of the ideas he spread uh, almost thorough like of um you know going back to nature and building a tribal community uh you know where everybody sits around the fire and bangs the drums and exchanges stories hello nomadland oscar winner this year <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you know he, he was prescient in a number yeah. of ways joe yeah yes
0: yeah well, it's a great listen. You know, there is some background noise. There always seems to be somebody else. There seems to be another interview going on at the next table in the restaurant, <laughs> slightly dis- <laughs> disarmingly. But, um, um, <laughs> but there we have it, Joe Strummer. So, Mark, do you want at <clears> this <throat> point to tell us about some of the pieces you've enjoyed adding? And, Vivian, just sort of do jump in if you hear anything that just sort of triggers a memory or an opinion.
4: The first piece is actually gold Dust. It's Nick Jones, our pal Nick Jones, Max Jones's son, who's the house hippie at Melody Maker from sort of 66 to 67. And interviewed David Bowie from 1966, which is gold Dust. Wow. You know, and he's says this thing that's really interesting because it really pertains to what he did, did subsequently. He says, I want to act. I'd like to do character parts. I think it takes a lot to become somebody else. It takes some doing. You know, which is pretty fantastic thing to read him saying in 1966, you know, way before Ziggy. Uh, Anne Moses in the NME in 1968 interviewing Nancy Sinatra. She says, I'm a flag waver. I like everything in red, white, and blue. I get tired of this anti-American stuff. And <laughs> this is 1968, you know, when America is split down the middle. This is this is, this is pretty serious shit. 1972, John McLaughlin just started the Vision Orchestra uh, interviewed by Rob Partridge. And he says, All my music becomes an offering to God, and I've realized that through my guru Sri Chinmoy that we all have a spiritual capacity. I find this interesting because that band fell to pieces hideously about a year and a half later precisely because the rest of the band were really sick of McLaughlin shoving his religion down their throats and being superior to the rest of the band on a spiritual level. And I've read this great interview with Rick Laird, where he's just so angry about it. You know, so it's, 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 it's interesting stuff. But Whedon, interviewed by Barry Kane for Record Mirror in 1976, saying, you won't catch me driving a motorcycle into a swimming pool or biting off a chicken's head. He comes over as... Very revolting bloke, actually, has to be brutally said. And, oh, look, Melody Maker, 1980. Robert Wyatt interviewed by Vivian Goldman. Oh.
0: It's fantastic. Extraordinary coincidence. Yeah,
4: extraordinary of coincidence. Of all the it's weeks. A, it's a fantastic... C- can you remember that interview, Vivian? I
1: totally remember that interview so well. And I'm actually still friends with Robert and Alfie to this day. Great. It turned out, you know, that was all kind of came from Brian Eno, actually. Right. To be honest, you know, because he was another neighbour in that magic little grid of streets at that time. And I remember he was going away for a long time. At that time, Robert was rather in retirement. And Jeff Travis was my flatmate. And right. he had a car. This was the magic thing because Brian had said try and keep you know say hi to Robert when I'm gone and Alfie and uh, Jeff had the car so Jeff used to drive me out to where they lived which was off off the subway track and in the end Jeff did encourage him to start recording again so that's very beautiful so we were like already friends before I did that interview and he does play on my laundrette single which is pretty amazing wow
4: fantastic Uh, Um, I mean
1: it's a terrific
4: interview I mean he talks quite a lot about his accent. He says, I was very drunk. I didn't fall out. I climbed out. It seemed the best way to leave the party at the time, which, of course, ended up him him spending the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Yeah. He says, you know, I reserve the old romantic right of ambiguity in art, 19th century though it may sound. I mean, it, I, I always like reading interviews with him. I mean, Barney, you've done a very really good interview with him too. He's so interesting and articulate and... I saw him with The Soft Machine and with Kevin A's whole world when he was still a drummer. And he's always been very close to my heart in a variety of ways. Terrific guy. <laughs> Let's move forward to what's going on this week. Penny Valentine on reviewing River Deep Mountain High for Disc and Music Echo in 1966. The most strange and fascinating sound, as though they're all doing some mad opera in a deserted monastery. I really, I really <laughs> I love that. I <laughs> yeah. um, She loves it's the so record. Good. She absolutely gets the record. I mean, I, I always like that when someone writes about something. And even with the sort of the 40-year sort of you know, retrospective look at it, you think this person spotted it, got it absolutely right. Oddly enough, I'm also posting Roy Carr's review of the album Fleetwood Mac, the 1975 album, which broke them through. He doesn't get it at all. You know they're they're barking up the wrong tree. It's fantastic. I like that. I yeah, they made that. a
0: big mistake bringing in yes. this this Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham. That's exactly this what is it the said. end of Fleetwood it's, it's,
4: Mac. It's, 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 it's hilarious. That's isn't. brilliant. Sly Stone, Disc Music Echo. I'd like to record anything I want to record, sing anything I want to sing, say what I want to say, and stay out of everybody's way. We all love Sly Stone here at Rocks Back Pages, so. Oh, yeah. Philip Elwood, in 69, seeing the Stones playing at the Oakland Coliseum. This is for the San Francisco Examiner. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, thoroughly professional, rough and unsavoury, wound up their audience to the breaking point at the Oakland Coliseum last night. I like the unsavoury element. <laughs> that was nice. Mickey Most being interviewed by Harold Bronson for Rolling Stone in 1972. Most of the artists are slags. They use you, Vacation on your yacht. Borrow money and never give it back, and I don't have the decency to tell you to your face. Thanks, Mickey. That's very, very charming. So, yeah, Blondie, well, Christine Debbie Harry, interviewed by Harry Dougherty, the 1978 Melody Maker. We're really wary of the English press. An analogy I thought of is the way some writers cover us, is like being spit at. That's Christine. Oh. Yeah, obviously
0: not talking wow. about not talking about Vivian there for one second. <laughs> Did you ever? Did you write about Blondie? You must well, say. I
1: had a couple of encounters with Blondie. Chris Stein was very helpful. I mean, I knew them, and still know them. But I guess my major Blondie story is that they credit me on that album because I gave them the record. The tide is high.
0: Oh my God! And, I don't think I knew that.
1: That's why my name's on the album. Wow! You know? and, and then the paragons. Yes. Yeah. And then every time I would run into John Holt in Jamaica, I would always be, John, get us a beer. <laughs> not yeah, you owe me. You owe me. But... Did, he, did he
0: make money? Did he make money from that
1: album? Did sure he did, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I don't great. think it was one of those horror stories, yeah.
4: Great.
1: You yeah, must have been a nice injection. For yeah, fantastic. Holt, the great Funny. John Holt.
4: Yeah. Debbie says, I'm not that much of a poser or an art freak that I'm going to say, no, no, my art, my art. This is the business which is pretty spot on. Now, Nick Toshes, who sadly died not all that long ago, I love him as a writer, but he could be fairly brutally sort of sexist. Or uh, I mean, he's of that generation of American writers, male sure. American writers who are kind of, you know, the copocracy boys, Vivian, with no doubt. Yeah, yeah. And he's talking about, he's doing a retrospective on Wanda Jackson. He says, not even 20 years old, she sounded like she could fry eggs on her G-spot.
0: Vivian <laughs> is proud. What, <laughs> any,
1: yeah, any <laughs> <Yeah>. what? <laughs> what is, what is yeah. that? That's
4: just.
0: Mm, that's Nick Tosh's. Yeah. That's Nick Tosh's.
1: And I'd always thought he was kind of cool until I heard that. Well,
0: he was a great writer, but you know, I mean, he just did come <laughs> from that generation of sort of. There's a sort of machismo to the writing, isn't there? I mean, You know, Lester Bangs and Meltzer and the others weren't very different. They were, they were rowdy, drunken boys.
1: Yeah, but Lester Bangs was not, was welcoming to women, I found. I think he
0: was more, he was certainly a real champion of, say, the female performers on the kind of punk scene in New York.
1: And when I teach, when I teach, I very often have reason to send students to that article he wrote about racism at CBGBs, stuff that really needed to be said. And yep. he said it very well. OK. Mm-hmm. Available on a PDF online, if you put it.
0: I mean, he could be sort of borderline homophobic in, in really? pieces. But then, I mean, I think most male American rock critics and possibly some females were sort of mildly homophobic about sort of glam rock bands and so forth it just was it, it just that they just, just didn't wasn't,
1: get it they just it. weren't cool
4: anyway wanda jackson yeah that's my lot so i'll, I'll handle no, it okay. i'll mention
0: three things quickly on En passant, as uh, I like to say, the first is from 2005 and previous podcast guest, John Harris, Guardian star, inevitably revisiting Britpop in 2005. And he's talking to Graham Coxon and Alan McGee. And I think it's Louise of Sleeper, Louise Wenner Then I'm not sure you pronounce her name. Anyway, just revisiting the inevitable blur Oasis War. This is very good. It's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a great piece. There's a piece by Rob Hughes in the Daily Telegraph. It's an interview with Roy Harper, who after a fair number of years sort of in the wilderness is being embraced by people like Joanna Newsom and Jonathan Wilson. And he's about to play or has played a show, I think at like the Festival Hall with not only like Joanna Newsom on the stage, but also his old mucker, Jimmy Page, as well. I mean, anyone who can bring together Jimmy Page and Joanna Newsom must be doing something right. I'm not sure that they were playing together, (laughs) but it was a sort of night celebrating Roy Harper.
3: The kettle's on The sun has gone Another day
0: and then finally, there's a long interview that the great Chris Heath did in 2015 with Willie Nelson. It's called, I think it's called Willie and the Weed Factory. So it's basically about, <laughs> about Willie and weed and a brand of weed called Willie's Reserve, which you know is obviously his brand. And so it's not just talking about, Smokable substances, but but mainly at great lengths <laughs> talking about how much we, weed Willie has sort of smoked in his like in his sort of seventy years or more or more, yes. Did you are you are waving your hand and I'm yeah. hoping you're going to tell me that you smoked weed with Willie Nelson.
1: Uh, not Willie Nelson others, others? you know the marlies and fellas of this world but but not not Willie Nelson not really. but I was going to say that the atmosphere here in Jamaica is so much improved since weed got legalized and yesterday really? you know for, in New York I you know I get a local newsletter they are just suspending over 3000 cases against, I'm sure, mostly young men and mostly young men of colour, you know. They're just dropping the cases. So I think... uh, And the same in Manhattan is about to happen. And it's just such a relief that the corrupt... Forces that whose interest it was to criminalise these young generations yeah. Yeah. have been overcome at this point. It seems that's right. know, yeah. I Big don't think it'll be. turn back. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks for sharing that with us. So those are the three things that's, that jumped out for me. And Jasper, have you got any juicy things? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'd like to talk about two things briefly. I mean, both of which actually you sent me to add. Both of which are very interesting. First of them is an album review by previous Rockstar Page's podcast guest, Candia Crazy Horse, mm-hmm. reviewing La Belle's Back to Now in 2008, which was an album that they kind of came back together and they did another album. And actually I was listening to it before we started recording and I didn't really want to turn it off to come and record because it was really good. For an album, you know, recorded so much in post. It's got one track, I think, that was sort of discovered in the vaults, but Candia writes very nice about it. And it starts off the article with a nice mention of Alan Toussaint being asked to play Lady Marmalade at a gig. Saint obliged with a few lines before jokingly gesturing into the air before him. Take it, Patty. You know. <laughs> right. But Candia uh... writes really nicely about the album as well. Kicking off with Hendrix in fine songwriting form on Candlelight, a twang ballad spurred to the brink of disco country and ably handled from Lenny Kravitz's production chair, this new disc contains no filler save the debut single. And, it, I mean, that, that Candlelight record is kind of amazing because it does have this kind of ballady feel and then suddenly it just kicks off into this disco groove and it's just brilliant it's just really good fantastic
1: it's a lakey deep inside me and it makes me makes me want you more and more and it-
2: The article concludes about the, the, the album Closer. It's a magnificent album Closer, but it's back to the future feedback loop in conversation with Hendrix's own compositions, only underscores the fact that she remains the great enigma of late 20th century vanguard pop and Afrofuturist rock, one of an elite few of the most undersung song catchers way past overdue to be seriously studied by music and culture scholars. Wow. Which I think right. is, is, is spot on. And I mean, I think LaBelle is slowly getting recognised a bit more in that front but not
0: you must know Nona
2: you must know Nona Vivian
1: I do know Nona you know I know them I I know them all really but au contraire I find that in the climate of today uh referenced almost more than ever before even the BBC I happen to see on my VPN has an Afrofuturist documentary yeah Echoeshan who presents it yes and you know actually if if they don't mention LaBelle somewhere in the series I think they already have mentioned LaBelle in part one you know labella avatars of absolutely everything that is happening now and yeah maybe i'm just mixing in a peculiar crowd but no, I, don't no,
2: know, I think a i lot think of you're right quite, <laughs> rightly i think they are but i think it's high We're time and i mean you, this this you was written know, in 2008 when i think that really wasn't the case yet so so i think well, that's oh yeah definitely
1: yeah. you know the whole afropunk movement in america yeah it yeah, and it you know, ties in with what we were talking about uh, about Lester Bang's article on racism in CBG. Mm-hmm. That movement arose from a vibe of one individual, which is very punk, making a thing that affected the world. Yeah. Because there was little to no space left in, in that section of the industry pie, they didn't give room for black people very much. You yeah. had Don Letts doing his music, you had our old photographer Dennis Morris with his pioneering Afro punk. Mm. Then, of course, you always had the towering figure of the Empress, as I like to call her, Grace Jones. Oh,
0: oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Of course. Of
3: course. But
1: generally, you know, it was quite a white scene, you know, apart from the group of, if you look at other sectors of punk outside of London and New York, a lot of it, you know, in Boston and places, you know, straight edge, you know, it's all in the mosh pit and um, you yeah. know, it's not really encouraged. So, yeah, yeah. You know,
2: great afropunk put on really good events in the uk sometimes as well now it's really really a a good organization Mm -hmm. the other thing i wanted to mention was this bizarre long article about i it's so strange vin diesel Hmm. arthur russell and me written by gary lucas for please kill me this year and it's about the time that Mix master Arthur Russell meets wannabe rapper Mark Sinclair, a.k.a. Vin Diesel. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) And it's just hilarious. I mean, apparently he wanted, you know, Mark Sinclair wanted to be a rapper, mononymous Sinclair. He wanted to be like, you know, Prince, but Sinclair. And Gary Lucas brought the two of them together in a recording studio. Uh, And it's just a hilarious story. And the whole thing really didn't work because Arthur Russell's beats that he made kept dropping the one. So Mark Sinclair kept losing his place while he was trying to rap. And there's a sort of implication that Arthur did it on purpose because Vin Diesel, Mark Sinclair at the time, had had offended him in some way when when they met. And so he kind of sabotaged the thing is kind of the implication. But it's funny, he writes very, very nicely, Gary Lucas, about... Arthur being the master of dislocated disco, whereby the traditional downbeat was sometimes totally obliterated or staggered or blurred over by other instruments in the mix in an exercise that resembled nothing so much as Coetus Interrupted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just what year, What year? not the year of publication, but what was the year when Gary Lewis brought...
2: I believe it's the 90s. I think yeah. it's sometime well, in the like early
0: 90s. Dot, when did Arthur Russell die? I mean, it must have been the 90s, I'm guessing. Yeah. Fascinating, though.
2: But it's really just a fascinating story and has great insights about both Vin Diesel and Arthur Russell. And I just, I mean, you know, it's, it's nicely written. Gary Lucas, an A&R man at the time, who then was encouraged by Arthur Russell to 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 do his own music as well and I think did that. And and it's, you know, it's just a, a great piece, long, long thing to read and really, really interesting.
1: May I ask, is that Gary Lucas, the legendary guitar player, Gary Lucas?
0: Same, the very same. Yes. Yeah, the very yes. same. Indeed. He's always uh, playing and he's always writing. He's an extraordinarily productive guy. Maybe he's got a bit more time to write because of the pandemic. He came on board recently. And we've actually got quite early pieces from when he was writing for his college paper, haven't we, uh, Mark? I think he, like, yes. reviewed Led Zeppelin two
4: when no, it came uh, out. Uh, uh, abso- absolutely. Yeah. Vivian, did you um, have any dealings with Arthur Russell when you first went to New York?
1: Honestly, no, but I've had a lot of dealings with Gary Lucas, on the other hand, and I've been <laughs> able to attend. Gary Lucas has a phenomenal imagination for shows. I really don't know anybody like him in the sense that he does travel the world with these pieces that he he conceptualises or what we call thinks of, like his orchestral pieces to the black and white film of um, you know, the expressionist masterpiece, The Golem. And so on, and his work with Chinese opera, wow. and then he projects the Chinese opera, and he's just there, you know, one man and his guitar and his many pedals, and it's mm. it, it literally is tr- you know very transporting. Fantastic, absolutely brilliant with it, and I just so admire him yeah. with sort of entrepreneurial spirit. He thinks of these things, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and he makes them happen, and behold, they are good. They're all idiosyncratic and individual, you know. Yeah, He's terrific yeah. and I always remember how he jumped in at the last minute when we put on a show for Ari of the Slits after, you know, she left us uh, at the Music Hall of Williamsburg and he heard about it and he said, oh, well, he called me up and he said, oh, I'm a huge Slits fan, please let me play and he was amazing. Oh, great. great. Arthur
4: Russell, someone I just find absolutely fascinating. He did such an extraordinary variety of stuff from working with Larry Levan on tunes to be played at the Paradise Garage to out and out art rock and sort of and, and, and avant garde music. Just such, such an interesting guy and such a sad yeah, story. Yeah, very sad.
0: I think this brings us to the end of the episode. Does it Indeed. not?
2: indeed it does
1: (laughs) (laughs) well it's really been delightful has has it been good for you it's been lovely (laughs) (laughs) it's been
2: been just
0: great Uh, You've done very well, sort of, basically, sort of, you know, handling this little male gang that is the Rock's oh, Back don't Pages. Yes, yeah. you know, every you... time I
1: write about this stuff, I always make a point to say it was just a certain crew, and that the people who were cool are still my friends today. In fact, when we're talking now, do you remember coming round to one four five A? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and um, that your final visit was me donating my entire collection of music papers to Rock's. Back pages. Absolutely. Saying in vain, try and keep them a bit separate just in case. And you saying, of course, Vivian, of course. Uh, If you can even find them, good luck. But yeah, that was quite moving. That was quite moving.
0: Oh well, thank F- you, Fantastic. thank you so much for letting yeah. us have those and for coming on board very early in the RBP story and for being here today. It's been a great, great pleasure speaking yeah. with you. And thank
2: you so much. Yeah, we wish you, so you know, the very best of
0: success with the new record and Fala Kuti that project and everything mm. else that no doubt you're involved with at this moment. So uh, look forward to seeing you. Yeah, If
1: listeners want to find me, I think they can. You know, (laughs) via social media or on Gmail, or I don't know. I never. We will put in
0: yeah i mean you have a website and we will Yeah, I have a website we will that's link correct. to that in on the on the site
2: uh, VivianGoldman.com.
1: yeah but it's embarrassing i have to be honest that is a real kick because that's so embarrassingly i don't think it even mentions the new album you know so <laughs> a real kick to i yeah, better you'd, get you'd better, that fixed better get that, better fixed, update yeah. that today get your
0: webmaster <laughs> on it right now <laughs> yes yeah, is, is Alex. your webmaster <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, He yes frankly um,
4: okay <laughs> it's
1: really been a joy I Oh, the things and I can joy. Come to London.
4: So the last bit of audio we're going to listen to is Joe Strummer talking about the music of the then-present-day 1988 and yeah. Reagan and Thatcher. So we'll, let's have a listen to this. And we'll say goodbye and we'll see, see you all in a fortnight. Barney, do we yeah. know who we are talking to in a fortnight? Well,
0: I believe we're going to be back with yet another guest from the East Coast. Which is Nelson George? Oh, the great, fantastic! Um, the great Nelson George, um, who we don't Excellent. have on Rocksback Pages, but um, I think we should spend the entire episode trying to recruit him officially for Rocksback Pages. <laughs> 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 anyway, hopefully we'll be speaking with him. That'd that be amazing. Be so, thanks, thanks everyone for joining us, and especially Thank you, you Vivian. Much, so, goodbye to all
4: our regular listeners. Bye. <laughs> oh, bye. Bye. bye.
3: years from now when thatcher's gone god knows what we'll have but we'll look back at this decade and we will have no respect for sting george michael whoever's big wacko jackson you know we'll have no respect for them at all it'll be like a decade of nightmare and their songs will be part of the soundtrack to it yeah but i mean the in, didn't no in fact that's I, I'd never stop torturing myself about that. In fact, I'm really volu- volatile about that, that. After all that, years, what we ended up was Reagan and Thatcher. You
2: know? That was Joe Strummer in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 1988, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Vivian Goldman. Visit her website at viviangoldman.com. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.